0: I want to encourage you this morning to make your way to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20, as we pick up on the heels of one of the more well known stories, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the impact of that. And we saw the rescue of Lot. What's interesting is, I don't know about the heading in your Bible. Mine just says Abraham and Abimelech, or Abimelech. But I think it could rightfully say, after the rescue of Lot, it could say the rescue here in Genesis 20 of Abraham. And so that brings before us a question that I hope to answer for you today. How does God overcome our sin? How does God overcome our sin? Thomas Brooks is one of my favorite Puritan writers back in the 1600s. In one of his books, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he writes these words. Beloved in our dearest Lord, Christ, the Scripture, your own hearts, And Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here nor happy hereafter. Brooks warns here all believers that we should be studying and seeking Christ and the Scriptures. Two of the things we're going to do this morning. But he says also that we should be aware of our own hearts and the work of the enemy. And I think that's the reminder of this, is Genesis 20 brings to bear on us our own hearts. In fact, he says, the neglect of being aware of our own sinful hearts is an endangerment to our happiness, our joy, our peace, contentment here, but ultimately a threat to our souls for eternity. And so this morning, I want to cause all of us, or I hope and pray to cause all of us to peer into Genesis 20 and see the reality of our own hearts as well. To examine deep within and ask the question, how does God overcome our sin? And for that answer, we look to Genesis chapter 20. Pick up if you would in Genesis chapter 20 as we undercover this first truth. God overcomes our sin by His sovereign power. God overcomes our sin by His sovereign power. In this moment, we're going to see God do something, right? Because Abraham and Sarah get themselves in another pickle or predicament. That it seems there's no way out unless God acts. Because you would begin in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 20. It says from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. If you've been with us before or you've studied much of Genesis, you know that this is kind of in some way the same old song and dance. In fact, Abraham had said this very same thing back in Genesis chapter 12 to who in Egypt? you remember? Pharaoh, didn't he? Yeah. He said the same thing in some way, right? I mean, he's, he's telling the truth because as we're going to see in a moment in verse 8 to 13, he says, well, actually, she is my sister. We have the same dad but a different mother, right? But, but again, I think it causes all of us to pause and reflect on our own hearts. And why is that? Have you ever had a moment when you've been like, God, I'm never going to do that again. And then you do that again. Or maybe you promised to someone that you love and care about, like, man, you promised to your mom and dad you wouldn't do that again. Or to a spouse or to a teacher and somewhere down the road you did that again. I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I know this refrain in my own soul. Like, I, I hate it. I, I don't want to return back there, but man, I just had this tendency in my sinful flesh to go back to those old wells again. And so I had to ask this question, is there any hope for a repeat offender like me? Maybe you wonder that too. Is there any hope for a repeat offender like you and whatever it is that you struggle with? And again, man, there there are those who wrestle and say, well, Abraham's just fibbing because, again, there's some sense it's a half-truth. But I think the text itself, and especially the context here of Genesis 20, makes clear and emphatic, this is Abraham lying. In fact, he's going to say, King Abimelech is going to say to him in verse 9, you're doing to me things that ought not to be done. Right? I don't know about you, but my mom was one of those ought moms. Right? Like, ought, ought, ought. Right? My kids, they can tell you. They pick up on it. Right? It was just one of those indications. When I heard mom say ought, it was like, you ought not be doing that. Right? That ought, that's just not right. And again, what's what's important? imperative on this moment is, uh, I know we had Genesis 19 and and Sodom and Gomorrah, but if you refine back to Genesis chapter 18, it's when the three visitors showed up. And it was there that Abraham and Sarah heard that within a year they were going to have what? A child. And so the question is, we don't even know, but it's quite possible that in this very moment, Sarah is already pregnant or maybe soon will be. This is a threat to the seed. This is a threat to God's promise. Because again, look what it says. Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and he takes Sarah. Right? So he takes her. The indication is he has some intention of being with her physically. And we have to ask, well, what can Abraham and Sarah do in this moment? Or what can any of us do in moments like this? Look at verse 3. Maybe I kind of raised on it. But look at this. What's, I don't know, it depends on your translation, but but God. But God. Beloved, that's the anthem of our hearts. As we look this morning and peer at our own hearts and see our sinfulness, the only refrain that we have back to God is not a defense about how good we are or what we've done or how we're doing better. Ultimately, our defense is but God. But God. And look what happens here. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. So this king has this dream. And listen to what God says to him. Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. This is the moment, right, where Abimelech is warned, right? God says, listen, you're a dead man. You're going to die because you've taken another man's wife. And listen, as one commentator said, a wife is at least At least her husband's most precious possession. And to take her is the worst kind of theft. This should serve as a warning to us all. Having another man's wife is no small thing in the eyes of God. In fact, Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 commanded death for adultery. Some of you here, you may say, Blake, listen, I've struggled with that or I'm guilty of that. Praise God for the but God moments. Amen. But others of you may hear and say, you know what? That's really not me, man. I don't have a struggle with that. Well, then Jesus shows up on the scene. And he says, I'll tell you the truth. If you've looked it at another man or woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. Where, church? In your heart. You hear it? Thomas Brooks, back to the search of the heart. You see, God's not just simply, beloved, concerned about what your and my outward actions are. Yes, indeed he is. But he looks deeper at the heart. It's a warning to us, all this text. Oh, God, have mercy on me. But listen to Abimelech respond, verse 4 and 5. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. He he hasn't been with her. So he says to God, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? That doesn't here like Abraham back in Genesis chapter 18, right, when he was pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Right, remember if there's 50 there, or 40 there, or 30, or 20, or 10, it's seemingly that similar echo, that refrain, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Lord, will you destroy the righteous? God, I, look what he says. Verse 5. He says further to the Lord Did he, did Abraham not himself say to me, She is my sister? And did she not herself say, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Abimelech again says he hasn't approached her or been with her. Thus he asked God again, Were you going to kill an innocent people? Now, Abimelech, he doesn't deny that he's done something wrong. But he says, listen, I've been misled. Abraham not only misled me, but she misled me too. Like she says, yeah, that's my brother. And he said that that's my sister. Thus, Abimelech says that all this demonstrates that he was acting with integrity and the cleanness of heart. But we have to ask, is this true? Will this hold up? Look what God says in verse 6. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God affirms the integrity of Abimelech's heart. Is that not what you and I long for? That the God who sees and knows us to the depths of our being affirms our integrity of heart? Is that not the longing desire of our soul's And then God says something even more astounding. Look what he says there. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. God kept him from acting upon it. It's a reminder of the truth of Proverbs 21 and 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like a stream of water, and he turns it wherever he will. Beloved, if God can restrain a pagan king and keep him from sinning, Can he not restrain us who are sons and daughters? Beloved, this ought to encourage us to cry out, Lord, lead us not, what, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Furthermore, notice that line with, again, Sarah, another man's wife, is not just sinning against, right, Abraham. Notice what he says there. And it was I who kept you from sinning, what, against me. David says the same thing in Psalm 51 after he has this long period where he doesn't come clean. He finally comes clean about he and Bathsheba. And he says in verse 4 these words, O Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. It's a reminder that yes, our sin is against others, but it is first and foremost against the holy God. And so we hear this truth. And we wonder what's going to happen. The truth is, it it doesn't have to be. This doesn't have to be the way it goes. Listen, no matter what you've done or the integrity of your heart, or maybe you say, my hands are really dirty. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've seen this week. You don't know the things I've said to my spouse. You, You don't know, Blake, the way in which I've desired after sinful things this week. Then hear afresh and anew the Lord's grace and mercy. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So again, if you were in Sunday school, we, we've been studying there just God's justice. This is God's justice. He is, he is warning what's going to happen, but it's off, also an offer A forgiveness, an offer of restoration. Abimelech has a choice. He can continue in his sin. And guess what? He is going to pay the wages of that sin. And the wages of that sin, God says, listen, if you don't do it, here's the wages for that sin. It's death. And it's not only for you, but it's all who are yours. I mean, it's the refrain, right, isn't it, of Romans 6? For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is what, church? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Abimelech is offered the choice between life and death. And I think we all wrestle with that daily. Will I repent or will I keep going my own way? You see, I think when we contemplate that for an instant, when you or I refuse to repent, in those moments we're choosing a type of death and separation. Right? I mean, in our refusal to repent and continuing to go in our pursuit of sin, it creates a separation between us and God. But think about it also not only vertically, but think about it horizontally in your relationships. When you refuse to forgive, it creates a separation and sometimes it creates a death between you and that person. I mean, you've got people you can't even look at. Like when you show up at the ball game and you pass by them, man, you're like, you just spy. Like, you don't even want to look at that person. That hatred, and listen, beloved, it can happen sometimes to people in our own bedrooms, in our own homes. It can happen to the, the, the brothers and sisters we grew up in the family with and our, our families begin to splinter and just all of this. But hear Paul's words say to us, as far as it depends on you and I, live at peace with everyone. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Brother Todd preached that last week to Ephesians 4 and 3 to us. So I want to ask you, you've got some decisions to make, just like Abimelech. Will you keep going your own way? Keep hardening your heart toward that person? I refuse. Again, this doesn't dismiss things that have happened. I'm not minimizing things that have happened. But, beloved, when you and I refuse to repent, it creates a separation between us and the Lord. But, beloved, it also brings separation between us and those we love and care about. I urge you this hour look to Christ. The first scene of Genesis 20 shows us that our sin can't overcome God's sovereignty, right? Because, again, Abraham and Sarah messed up. They both lied and deceived. And yet God sovereignly steps in in, in, the, in, in the method of a dream. But that doesn't mean that our sin is insignificant. And I think that brings us to our second truth here in verse 8 to 13. And it's this. God overcomes our sin, yes. But our sti- our sin still brings shame and excuses. God, yes, he overcomes our sin, but I think verse eight to thirteen show us our sin still brings shame and excuses. Here verse eight to ten. So Abimelech, who's the king, he rose early in the morning after that dream, and called all his servants, and told to them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abimelech seems to be asking, like, what evil, what did I do to you so bad that you treated me this way. I think Abimelech's asking the question that you and I so often ask: Why? Why did this happen? Why did, why did you do this? In fact, I think Moses wants us to see the greatness of it, right? Look what he says. There, um, yeah, at the end of verse 9, right here, draw your attention to it. You have done to me things that ought not to be done, right? I mean, look at this. Um, yeah, sorry, it's the beginning of verse 9. I was like, where is it? What have you done to us? I think Moses is drawing our attention to that statement. Why? Because that's the very same thing that God says to Cain after he kills his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. What have you done Your brother's blood is calling out to me from the ground. It's a serious moment. Like, what have you done? And we're left to wonder, what will Abraham's response be in this moment? Will he acknowledge his sin? Will he come clean? Or will he try to cover it up with excuses? Listen to verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought. There's no fear of God at all in this place. And they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God calls me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Notice Abraham's excuse. The reason for his own sin isn't his fault, it's their fault. Right? I mean, look at what he says. what he says. He says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of who? There's no fear of God at all in this place. And I think in some ways, like, like, I mean, that's that's so often our tendency, is that our sin is always somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's. And I think in some ways, like, this statement's ironic, isn't it? I mean, like, Abraham's the guy who just a few chapters before went and rescued Lot with 300 men against four other kings. And now he's he's struggling he needs his own wife to protect him. Do you see that? This is how you protect me. This is how you make me safe. You see, it seems to seem apply to them like, listen, you guys don't fear God, but I do. But it sure seems that he fears man and not God. A few weeks back in our family worship, we were in 1 Samuel 15. And it was there that Saul was told to obey the Lord as he went into the war and to destroy everyone but Saul keeps all these things back and then it just made so clear in our family worship Saul makes excuse after excuse after excuse of why he didn't obey the Lord and man I'm telling you since we've done that I have struggled with just recognizing I have such a tendency to excuse my sin I got a tendency to excuse my sin it's always yeah but or someone did this or someone did that like there's this tendency in my heart like to find a reason why I sinned it's because someone else did something or maybe they didn't do something and therefore it gave me a reason to act this way or to say this or that and i think the truth is in our excuses we're trying to mask our shame and our regret sin seems to offer security to abraham and or to us in the moment but beloved it never delivers It never delivers. I can imagine this morning that in fact that if you're a non-believer in this audience and you hear this story, you must be asking, is that actually the father of y'all's faith? That's the guy y'all call Father Abraham? And you're right. What he's doing here and what he did back in Genesis 12 is no small thing. But I think this moment I might also pose a question back to you as a non-believer. Just gently I want to ask maybe a question you ought to consider. Why does God save Abraham or anyone, for that matter, at all? Is it because they're so good? If so, then how good is good enough? Like if it's meriting God's favor, His kindness, His forgiveness, then how good do you have to be? Or might it be, unbeliever, believer this morning, might it be that God doesn't actually save anyone because they are so good, but because He is so gracious? My friend, I would just urge you this morning that none of us merit God's grace and mercy. That's why we are indeed, that's why we call it Father Abraham. We're following his footsteps. Not that he was perfect or anybody else in this scripture was, but there finally came one. And Abraham was looking and he was justified by faith, not because he was good enough. And the good news is there came one who was good enough. One who never lied, who never deceived, one who went to that old rugged cross and there, he who was despised and shamed by the world, he, the Son of God, the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on that cross, taking the judgment of God for our sin and shame that we might be forgiven and accepted by God. It's the hope of the gospel. You see, the cross isn't where God excuses sin, it's where He judges sin. God never excuses sin, beloved. He never excuses it. And the truth is, you've got to figure out how your sin is going to be handled and dealt with. Will it be by your own works and trying to merit enough good works? And again, how good is good enough that you'll have to stand before a holy God and give an account for your words and your actions? And indeed your very own heart. Or will you today in humble repentance acknowledge that you, just like Abraham and just like Sarah, don't always get it right and you are in desperate need of a Savior and forgiveness. It's the hope of the gospel. Again, these first truths pack a punch about that God's sovereignty, right, comes in that moment, overcoming our sin as we see it there in the dream as he reveals himself to Abimelech. We're also warned, even as we hear Abraham, that our, guess what, our sin, it brings shame and excuses. And then I think it brings us to our third and last truth. God overcomes our sin through his sin-conquering grace. God overcomes our sin through his sin-conquering grace. Verse 14 says, then, right after Abraham's speech back, we wonder, what will Abimelech do or say? This is kind of a climactic moment. What's going to happen? Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And then verse 16 it's kind of this major anthem. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your what, church? Your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. In the giving of again all these servants specifically the thousand pieces of silver it's a declaration that Abimelech has never been intimate with Sarah. Now this isn't just a major moment in Genesis chapter 20 but we as readers know we know that there's a promise that's going to come through this seed, through this line of Abraham and Sarah. We are waiting for it. Within a year, we see the danger that Genesis 20 presents. But beloved, there is a God who is greater than the storm. Hallelujah, there's a God who is greater than your and my sin and failures and mistakes. There's a God who can bring good out of even our failures and mistakes. It is God who is protecting the seed. It is God who is protecting the promise. But I also want to pause here. Because I don't think this is what we should normally expect to happen. We shouldn't expect that, you know what, I can lie and that means that God's going to bless me. That's not what Genesis chapter 20 is teaching. So don't assume this in here that if you're a Christian, then you can go lie to the judge or to your employer and get out of it. Or kiddos, you can't lie to your parents or a teacher at school and think, well, you know what, Abraham and Sarah worked out all right for them. Nor should it teach us to lie to our spouse or a fellow church member. And that God's just going to bless us. That's not what this story is teaching. That's why we've labored so much in these earlier points to show the danger of our sin. This is not giving us a license to live any way we want. In fact, this story seems to go against the mentality of, guess what? Live it up any way you want. You can always ask for forgiveness later. Paul would answer that in Romans chapter 6. When those who thought, you know what? If we sin and mess up, then... Let's just sin and mess up all the more because it looks like God's just that much more of a forgiving God. Paul says, God forbid. He says, God forbid that we should live like that. He says, we've died to sin. How shall we live in it any longer? That is not the way of God's people. And Abraham, again, he's struggling here in this moment. But this chapter comes to a close with God intervening. And guess what? Abraham begins to finally live out his true identity. You see, Abraham was blessed that he might be a blessing to the nations. Remember that Genesis chapter 12, that major refrain, right? That I'm going to bless you, that in you all the nations on the earth shall be blessed. Guess what? That's how it ends with Genesis chapter 20, verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And again, that maybe gives some indication of why this dream and everything was so real. There was, we, don't, we don't know all the things that were happening, but clearly it says that there was healing that had to take place, right? So we don't know exactly how God's judgment was maybe visibly acted upon them, but it got their attention, and so God brings judgment upon Abimelech and his household because of Abraham. But when he repents and submits to the Lord, the Lord, guess what? He brings blessing to him through Abraham, doesn't he? He blesses. And again, when he prays, and, or Abraham prays on his behalf, the Lord opens these wombs and allows them to bear children again. I think all this points to a greater deliverance. You see, the reality is that you and I were taken captive by sin. But there came one on our behalf. Jesus, the Son of God. And listen, it appeared that on that cross there that Satan had won, that the Son of God had been defeated. But Colossians 2 and 15 says to us that He disarms all powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. And in the cross, guess what? There, His victory is not seen there just simply on that day. But on the third day, the Sunday morning, it's why we gather on Sunday. On Sunday morning, by the power of God, the Son of God was raised to life again. And guess what, beloved? He comes out declaring our innocence. His resurrection is a declaration that God has accepted that payment. And all who put their faith and trust in Him are forgiven and redeemed And have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God ultimately overcomes our sin through His Son and His sin conquering, death defeating, Satan destroying, glorious resurrection from the dead. To the non-believer this morning, I will agree with you. This text is confounding. And that's why when we read it, Abraham deserves to be cursed and not blessed. But that's how he and Sarah leave. In our world, that doesn't seem right because you only get what you pay for. You only get what you work for. But God's kingdom is one where mercy triumphs over judgment. And why is that? Because if people only got what they deserved, then we'd all get hell. We'd all get God's just, judge, just judgment and wrath forever. But instead, there's good news that we. Yes, deserve to be cursed, but Christ Himself was cursed for us. He took our judgment. To the non believer, I urge you this morning would you humble yourself like Abimelech and look to the Lord that you might receive the blessing and mercy and the forgiveness of God, that you might be redeemed and restored to live a different way of life, forgiven and set free? to the believers, to the church. I began this morning with a quote by Thomas Brooks, and I want to make another quote from his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, where he writes as a pastor to his church, and he says this in his closing. Look what he says. For a close, remember this, that your life is short, your duties many, your assistance great, and your reward sure. Therefore, faint not. Hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. Beloved, our time and our lives here is short. Brothers and sisters, we know the story of Abraham well. Why? Because it's like our story. One minute we're doing well, and the next minute we're not. We know well this story. It is the refrain of our own lives. It is the so often the melody that one minute we seem to be hitting the right note, and the next moment it's like, man, where did that... But as Thomas Brooks says to his audience, listen, his church, faint not, do not grow weary. Hold on and hold up, knowing that God's grace and mercy are more. He redeemed the Father of our faith. Will He not redeem you? Trust in Him. Rest in Him. That's why we're going to sing just now as we close this precious hymn. I want to draw your attention this morning to the third verse that you're going to sing. Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power. To all the ransomed Church of God, be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. We know the story of Abraham well, and it creates heartache in our own hearts to know and see our own sin. But beloved, we have hope because there is coming a day when we will be saved to sin no more. It is the victory that Christ has that one day our sin, our sinful flesh, we will put off this body of death and put on the very righteousness of God, and we, as John says, will see Christ face to face. And we, the children of God, will be saved to sin no more. It is the hope of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you and praise you this morning for your word. Father, we acknowledge that we need, as Thomas Brooks told his church, to know our hearts well, to search them intently. Father, I ask this morning that whatever you have revealed by the power of your Holy Spirit, I realize there are things that... I'm sure I have not touched on, but your spirit has brought to the heart and mind of the listeners here this morning. Father, I pray that they would hear the choice of life and death. And that they would choose life by repenting and looking to you. Father, I ask that you would empower us to forgive those who have hurt us. Father, we ask that you would change us, that we would tell the truth and not try to deceive. Lord, thank you for your word that you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity we have now to sing in this coming hymn the goodness and the victory of Jesus. Thank you, God, that your word promises never to return void, but accomplish always the purpose for which you have sent it. Father, may you be glorified by bringing your son glory through this proclaimed word this morning. Strengthen the church and set our hope on the fact that one day, We will be with you. And because of Christ and the Holy Spirit who indwells us for all eternity, we will be saved to sin no more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.